Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever felt embarrassed? I'm sure that you can think of something that you have said or done that has caused you to feel a tinge of regret, something that brought color to your face. It was likely an event or situation that you would rather forget about, let alone bring up in polite conversation. I think we can all identify with this feeling. Now just imagine how you would feel if everyone was made aware of your most embarrassing moment. Someone had videotaped the event and was broadcasting it for everyone to see. I can can think of several scenarios where a wider audience would make that sense of embarrassment even more intense. But let me just describe one to you. A young man about to graduate from high school puts on his best formal attire, a black suit. He goes and picks up his escort for a graduation ceremony. Upon entering the building, his date drops her purse. And with good manners, he bends over to retrieve it. Later, during the ceremony, as the graduates ascend to the podium to accept their diplomas, the audience observes his white underwear protruding through a split in the seat of his pants. Of course, his brother, noticing the problem, points it out to everyone around him. Throughout the audience, you hear a few chuckles and expressions of surprise. The situation would be extremely embarrassing, especially since there were so many onlookers who saw what was happening. The level of embarrassment one feels is often related to the number of people who are present to observe that awkward moment in time. (coughs) But beloved, it could be worse. Embarrassment can lead to humiliation. Another factor that often affects our level of embarrassment and humiliation is the level of expectation that others have of us. Just think of the humiliation that a defrocked leader must feel. I think of someone like Saddam Hussein, the former leader of Iraq, who was held in honor by many in the Middle East for his defiance to the United States. But after his reign came to an end, he sat in a U.S. courtroom as a man humiliated, bearing the shame and embarrassment of his defeat. And now let's take it one step further. Just imagine the humiliation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior was a king from the line of David. The eternal king that the Lord had promised the nation of Israel would come to save his people. But the people's expectation in the day that he arrived was that he would overthrow their Roman oppressors. The throngs packed the streets of Jerusalem crying out, Hail to the king of David! when it became clear that he had no such plan, that the kingdom of Israel would not be restored here on earth. The people were deeply disappointed, even angry. They no longer wanted him as their king. And to make matters work, the very Romans who he was supposed to overthrow, well, they were the ones who consented to his death. The Roman-appointed ruler, Pontius Pilate, was the one who had to give the okay to the death 
of our Lord and Savior. Imagine the shame and the embarrassment that our Lord and Savior must have felt. He was considered a failure and a fraud by the very people who had rejoiced at his arrival in Jerusalem. But beloved, this was necessary for our salvation. Therefore, I preach to you God's word under the following theme and points. Christ, our King, suffered to save sinners. So he was humble in humiliation. He was buried in obscurity. And finally, he was tormented in hell. Beloved, the level of humiliation that our Savior endured cannot be compared to any other fall from grace in the history of the human race. We need to remember who our Savior was. He was God incarnate, the Son of God through whom everything that existed had been created. He was and is the rightful King of the universe to whom all power and all authority belonged. And yet He, in deference to the Father, humbled himself by taking on humanity. He suffered to live under the penalty of sin as a man of flesh, even though no sin was in him. And you would think that the people would have been grateful. But even his own disciples abandoned him. They didn't understand God's plan of salvation. Jesus knew that this was the way that things would have to go. We read in Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In that time after the disciples were scattered, what were they thinking? Did they too doubt their king? And sadly, congregation, they did. They, like the people, didn't quite understand why Jesus had come. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, two of Jesus' disciples, who had not yet heard about the resurrection, reveal that they had given up on their Savior. When they recounted the events surrounding the crucifixion of our Lord, this is what they said. Our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They too had hoped for the redemption of Israel. How disappointed they must have felt in their Lord and Savior. And our righteous king bore that shame. And then, beloved, we think about that sign that hung above our Savior's head. King of the Jews and the soldiers that mocked him, saying, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. The royal King of all creation, the Christ whose name would be exalted above every name, hanging on a tree, humbled and humiliated. Even one of the murderers next to him mocked him. And it causes us to wonder. Why did our Savior have to be so humiliated and then to suffer death, the penalty that God had pronounced upon the sin of humanity? And the Catechism comes with this essential question when it asks, 
Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Beloved, in order to answer this question, we need to take a step back to Genesis 2.17, where the Lord gives his warning to Adam. And he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. The expectation of God was that Adam would in humility submit to the divine will of the Creator God. We know that that was not what took place. Being tempted by the serpent, Adam and Eve rebelled. The root cause of that rebellion was their pride. In Genesis 3 we read, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve were enticed to sin with the promise that they would become like God. In their rebellion, they sought to ascend to the level of God himself. Pride is essentially the desire to be greater and more important than one really is. 1 John 2 verse 16 tells us where that pride comes from. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Beloved, don't we all continue to wrestle with this root cause of sin? Don't we often in our own pride want to be God of our own lives? The obedient response of Adam and of all of humanity for that matter is quite different. Our response should have been one of humility. God created us to worship Him in obedience, to know our place and our calling. We were created to humbly serve the God of our creation. But beloved, it's because we didn't that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had to. In fact, it's actually worse than that. Because we, in our pride, disobeyed the righteous requirement of our God. Now Christ, in His humility, needed to pay the penalty of our rebellion. The penalty for man's sin was death. God had warned Adam this would be the outcome for disobedience. The holiness of God's character required that justice be done, as we confess in Lord's Day 4. His justice requires that the sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. And since we couldn't satisfy the wrath of God, Christ came and humbled himself to death in payment for our iniquity, as we confess in question and answer 40. Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, like a lamb led to the slaughter, willingly went to the cross in humble obedience to the will of the Father, displaying the humble attitude that should have been in each and every one of us. 
And we should realize, brothers and sisters, that Christ's humility shows his great love for the fallen human race. He suffered all of this in obedience to the Father because he loved us. The humble Christ making payment for the fall of prideful man. We see this in the fact that he didn't go to the cross under compulsion. No, he went willingly in submission to the will of God to pay for our sin. John 10, verse 17 and 18, we read, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. But beloved, it's not just Christ who died there on the cross. Our reading in Romans 6 says that you who are united to Christ have also died. The old proud self was also nailed to the tree along with all your pride and your rebellion. Listen again to those words of Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Christ loved us so much that he humbly suffered the shame and humiliation of the cross in order to set us free from the slavery of our sin and pride. And you would think at this point that his humiliation would be over. But beloved, it it continued even after he died. And that brings us to our second point. He was buried in obscurity. The facts surrounding Christ's burial are often overlooked when discussing his humiliation. Except for a handful of those who were close to him, he was buried in relative obscurity. There was no fanfare, no public display of mourning. The Savior of the world had just died. The King of kings, who would ascend in due time to the heavenly throne of heaven, he did not lie in royal state. No, he died and was left hanging upon the tree until Joseph of Arimathea came to claim the body. He was laid in a tomb of stone, and a boulder was rolled in front of it. Guards were stationed at the entrance, not because of his royal majesty, but because the leaders of the people were afraid the disciples were going to perpetrate a fraud by stealing his body and so claim he had risen from the dead as he had promised he would. But this indignity, too, was necessary, as we confess in the Catechism. His burial testified that he had really died. When he still hung upon the cross, the soldiers had pierced his side, and when they observed the separation of blood and fluid, it confirmed that our Savior was really dead medically. And as one who had died, he was buried, confirming his actual death. His burial meant that he also suffered the curse of Genesis 3, verse 19, which said that the sons of Adam would return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
the royal son of God, relegated to the dust of the earth, just like the serpent cursed to eat the dust of the ground. Beloved, this is your humble Savior, who was brought low so that you might be exalted, that you might be lifted up. But the catechism raises a logical follow-up question. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Beloved, this question is somewhat loaded. Because the reality is, is that in one sense we will never die. Not truly. The death of the curse pointed to more than our physical death. It brought with it the eternal judgment of God. Sometimes known as spiritual death. And our Lord and Savior, by His death, freed us from the eternal wrath of God. Our reading in Romans 6.10 says, For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. And so we read in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes, Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Although we may still experience physical death, it takes on a completely new dimension. As Revelation says, there is no more sting to death because it's not the end, but a new beginning. And that's why we confess in the Catechism that our death is not payment for our sins. No, Christ has made payment. But death puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 9 and 10 confirm this conclusion when it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Paul speaks about whether we are awake or asleep meaning alive or dead. The implication is, brothers and sisters, that the victory of Christ our King also has a bearing on our lives today. Salvation is not something that will only be experienced in the future. No. We experience that reality right now, today. The Catechism then goes on to ask, what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? And the answer is, is that through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death and buried with Him. Our reading in Romans says much the same thing. As believers, we are united with Christ, and through that union, He took our sins to the cross. Our old nature that was dead in sin, has been crucified and buried. It's gone. And the result is that each and every one of us has been given new life and the power to overcome sin, even in this life. And the Catechism says, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us. And yes, beloved, this may still be a struggle. But we are empowered by the reign of our righteous king in our lives. 
So as the catechism confesses, so that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Beloved, as we await the day of our entrance into eternal life, we must continue to live in the power of Christ's victory, allowing Christ to reign in us. Romans 6 tells us, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. But the reality is that we've not yet shed this body of flesh. And so often we struggle and we fall short. And so Lord's Day 16 concludes with the assurance that our Savior endured the very depths of hell so that we would never have to. And that brings us to our final point. The Catechism asks, why is there added he descended into hell? In the answer to this final question about Christ's humiliation, we see the depths of our Savior's suffering. Although our righteous king had been shamed before the people of Israel, had died the accursed death upon the cross, and then returned to the dust of the ground, all this shame and humiliation pales in comparison to his descent into hell. The depths of one's humiliation can often be intensified by the relationship of the one shamed to the one doing the shaming. And in the final stage of Christ's humiliation, he suffered the shame of his very own Father in heaven. We need to understand that Christ did not physically descend into some place called hell. The hell he suffered was the separation rejection, and chastisement of God, his Father. When he hung there on the cross, an unnatural darkness descended upon Golgotha, a symbol of God coming in his wrath. From the sixth to the ninth hour, our humble Savior endured the wrath of God, not just his rejection, but the positive punishment of God's eternal wrath upon the sin of the whole world. Matthew 27, verse 45, we read the scriptural account of these events. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And although it is right for us to be grieved that our Savior had to suffer so much to redeem sinners from the wrath of God. His suffering, however, was necessary. And it has a silver lining. It is bittersweet because our Savior suffered this fate. We who believe will never have to. It also means that in our struggle to overcome sin, we need not despair. If we fail to overcome the sin and misery of this world, we are not utterly lost. We place our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. 
We have a Savior who has overcome the very anguish and torment of hell itself. And so the Catechism confesses those assuring words. That even in my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by His unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which He endured throughout all His suffering, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Behold, congregation, your righteous King, who went to the very depths of hell to defend and preserve you to be His own. May your allegiance rest in Him alone, to serve Him with humility, to trust Him with confidence, because with our glorious King, we will never be put to shame. Amen.